Father God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the fact that we sense that we are in your presence. Now, Lord, hide the messenger behind the message and uh, speak to hearts through the foolishness of preaching. May lives be changed, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Dana, for leading us tonight. Um, today, I, I was looking back through a list. I looked it up online. It's the, um, how did they word it? The best of the worst country song titles. The best of the worst. And every time I look, there's new titles that they've added, and it just kind of gets my attention. Here's some of the ones that, that caught my attention today. The next time you throw that frying pan, my face ain't going to be there. Really? I bought the boots that walked out on me. I've got you on my conscience, but at least you're off my back. <laughs> Here's one I know that you've heard before. You're the reason our baby's so ugly. Thank God and Greyhound, she's gone. Now, I'd never heard this one. Mama, get the hammer. There's a fly on Papa's head. Has anybody ever heard that song? Her teeth were stained, but her heart was pure. You know, when it comes to culture, when it comes to capturing our culture, country and western songs just have a way of capturing uh, especially southern culture more than, than uh, any other genre of music. Uh, Mark Chestnut in 1994 had a song called Going Through Big D and I Don't Mean Dallas. I want you to hear some of the words. Six short months we went together, decided it should be forever. Two paychecks are better than one, a diamond ring, and it was done. Bought her a house, like I said I would, in subdivided neighborhood. The fuse got short and the nights got long. It was over, long gone. Before I knew where I was headed to, I'm going through the big D and don't mean Dallas. I can't believe what the judge had to tell us. I got the Jeep, she got the palace. Um, you know, divorce is something that I would dare say everybody in this room has been affected by. If it's not in your family, it's somebody that's very close to you, somebody that you care a lot about, you've seen uh, the heartache that goes through it, you've observed it. In the United States, on average, there's 2.4 million marriages every year. There's 1.2 million divorces every year. Now, on the surface, you say, okay, so that's 50%. Not really. In first marriages, 41% of first marriages end up in divorce, all right? Second marriages, 60%, and third marriages, 73% end up in divorce. And so the, the reason it looks like it's 50% is because it's not factoring in the rapid occurrence of second and third marriages ending in divorce. Now, you know what's interesting to me is a lot of people today inside, outside the church are confused about whether divorce is right or wrong. Now, if we say that we believe the Bible and we say that we read the Bible, then there's no reason for us to be confused. God's Word's clear. If, if we're confused, it's either because we're not reading the Word or we're not believing what we're reading or we're trying to skew what we're reading to fit our own life. The title of tonight's sermon is Dealing with Divorce. We're in a series, The Sermon on the Mount, and uh, we're just taking the passages as they come. In tonight's passage, Jesus takes two verses, 
and he deals with the topic of divorce. Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32, I invite you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Again, these words are in red. This is all part of the, the words of Jesus. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. God bless the reading of his word. Go ahead and be seated. If you remember, Jesus is in a passage where he's, he's went through the Beatitudes, and now he's, he's contrasting you know, he, he had said that unless your righteousness ex- exceeds the scribes and Pharisees, you will no way enter the kingdom of heaven. You remember the saying, they had a saying in the first century that if only two people get into heaven, one would be a scribe and one would be a Pharisee. And Jesus is, is countering that by saying, no, you know, you've got to be above that. that. That is too low of a standard. Your righteousness has to be above that. And so what he does in the rest of chapter 5 after he says that is he, he contrasts it. You have heard it said, and he gives what will be the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And then he raises the bar and he says, but I say to you. You know, when we looked at, at adultery, who, you know, you've heard it said you should not commit adultery. And then Jesus says, but I say to you, whoever looks on a woman with lust in his heart has already committed adultery. Same thing with murder. Uh, you know, if you're angry in your heart towards them, you've in essence committed murder. And so he's raising the bar. Now, there's a book called Christian Counterculture by John R.W. Stott. In order to set the stage for tonight's sermon, I want to read to you a paragraph out of that book. Because I think he captures the heart of every pastor shepherd who preaches on this topic. He says, and I quote, I confess to a basic reluctance to attempt an exposition of these verses. This is partly because divorce is a controversial and complex subject, but even more because it is a subject which touches people's emotions at a deep level. There's almost no unhappiness so poignant as the unhappiness of an unhappy marriage, and almost no tragedy so great as the degeneration of what God meant for love and fulfillment into a non-relationship of bitterness, discord, and despair." Although I believe that God's way in most cases is not divorce, I hope I shall write with sensitivity, for I know the pain which many suffer, and I have no wish to add to their distress. Yet, he says, it is because I am convinced that the teaching of Jesus on this and every subject is good, intrinsically good, good for individuals, good for society, that I take my courage in both hands and write on. Divorce is probably the most painful or certainly one of the most painful issues facing the church today. It just causes pain. Some of you here are most likely divorced. You never planned for it to happen, but it happened nonetheless. And you know the hurt and the heartache that was a result of that. Um, maybe tonight, because of a divorce, you have an overwhelming sense of, of guilt. Some here, even in a crowd this small, some are likely contemplating divorce. You're wondering how your family will accept you, how your faith family will accept you if you do indeed follow through. Some of you are most likely would say you are unhappy and unfulfilled. You have no papers, no divorce papers, but you and your spouse live as though you were already divorced. And so today with a shepherd's heart and a prophet's passion, I want to blend the two. Knowing that I love you as your pastor and as your shepherd, at the same time to speak prophetically from God's word, I want to speak with hopefully a balance of grace 
and truth. You know, if you happen to be divorced, you need to understand you have a place at Eastwood Baptist Church. There are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. You understand that? I mean, for some reason, a lot of churches make you wear a scarlet letter. They, you know, not physically, but in folks' mind, they kind of ostracize you should you happen to know the pain of divorce. God forgive us if we ever communicate a spirit of judgment towards those who know the pain that divorce brings. There's no way I can say everything that needs to be said in a 30-minute message. It's a good chance some of you will probably um, have a different position than me, and that's okay. I don't, I don't, I'm not bothered by that. I just try to stay with the Word of God. And if your position more lines up with the Word of God than mine, then maybe we ought to follow your position. But that's the, this is the, uh, this is the uh, standard by which we should judge. Um, why is there such an attitude, a casual attitude by, by Christians toward marital vows? You know, because there really is. I mean, if you, if you think about the church, if you've been alive for very long and been in church for 20, 30 years at least, you know that there is a much more casual attitude today about marriage vows than there was 20 or 30 years ago. I think there's probably uh, three reasons that I came up with. One is public opinion. Public opinion has changed on whether divorce is acceptable. And so I think that's why a lot of Christians have taken it more casually. A Gallup poll this year said that 70... Now, Gallup, remember, they, they poll mostly people of faith, said that 73% of Americans feel that divorce is morally acceptable. So three out of four say, yeah, that's an option. It's okay. 1968, California was the first state with no-fault divorce. By 1985, 48 more states had uh, followed suit by those who said they were very religious to Gallup. By very religious, it means you attend church at least one time a week. By those who said they were very religious, 51% said it's a morally acceptable thing to get a divorce. It's not that big of a deal. So public opinion is one reason. I think unapplied orthodoxy. Now, these are my words. This, this is something I heard from my mentor in, in I really think in, in Southern Baptist life, this is probably the biggest problem we have. Got your attention? What is unapplied orthodoxy? We believe the right thing. We just don't want to practice it ourselves. That, that's the problem is, is a lot of folks would say, well, you know, I believe what the Scripture teaches about divorce, but you know, you just don't know my situation. No, I don't. I don't. Or, you know, I know what the Scripture teaches about witnessing, or I know what the, teacher, the Scripture teaches about stewardship, and, and, and on and on, but, you know, I'm not going to witness, I'm not going to tithe, I'm not going to do that. I believe the right stuff, I just don't practice it. And then the third one is delayed consequences. Because we don't see the immediate fallout of a situation, makes it look a little bit more tenable, less, less problematic. Um, just an example of what happens, and we'll talk about children in a moment, but um, did you know a woman's standard of living after divorce, the first year after divorce, drops 71%? 71%. A man's standard of living increases by 43% after divorce. It's not right, not fair, but it's the way that it is. Do you know the Christian denomination with... Um, that is most likely to divorce? Baptist. 
29% of Baptist adults are divorced. Friend, that's higher than the atheists and the agnostics. Atheists and agnostics only have a 21% divorce rate. So we're higher than them. There are only two things when you boil it down that cause unhappy marriages. Only two things. Men and women. I mean, it, it, it's most, it, it is most common denominator. The only thing that causes unhappy marriages are men and women. Chuck Swindoll said two processes should never be entered into prematurely, embalming and divorce. <laughs> now, there are two things I want you to see from the text of what Jesus says, and then I want to give you some life application, hopefully, that will help you uh, understand how God's Word applies to you. Number one, we must confront the problem. Jesus clearly in verse 31 is going to deal with the problem. He says, furthermore, it's been said, whoever divorces their wife, his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, he's actually quoting Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. Uh, this is a quote from the Old Testament. The Pharisees had interpreted that God not only uh, condoned divorce at, at times, he even commended it. He even, he even recommended it, said, you know, this, this might be what's best. Um, and so the Pharisees, it was, it was as though God were saying the only important thing is that you give her a certificate of divorce. As long as she has the certificate, it's all good. That, that's all that has to happen. The paperwork has to be done is in essence what the, the Pharisees were believing. Now, there was no argument about whether divorce was right or wrong. Uh, what God says, much, much like today, divorce was a reality. And so this is how you do it. It was the same mindset then as it is today. If it's legal, it must be right. That, that was the mindset then, and that's the mindset today. Well, if something is legal to do, then it must be right. Friend, that's not always the case. You know, Paul said in Romans about, he talked about, you know, just because something is, is lawful doesn't make it right. Um, divorce was as hot, get this, divorce was as hot a topic in the first century as it is today. I mean, had, nothing's changed in 20 centuries. In, in Matthew 19, 3, the Pharisees asked Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Now, they were trying the trapping there, it says, but listen to what they said. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Because it was happening in the first century, and, and it's much like today, the no-fault divorce. You know, let's just get a divorce for any reason. In the first century, if the wife transgressed the law of Moses or Jewish customs, you could divorce her. Now, here are some of the things that would transgress either the law of Moses or Jewish customs. If she, gave, if she fed her husband untithed food, he could divorce her. So if you had crops and she fed you some before the first tenth was given to the temple or synagogue then you could divorce her if she didn't set aside the dough offering you could divorce her if she went outside with her hair unbound you could divorce her if she were to spin in the street you could divorce her if she spoke to another man you could divorce her if she were a scolding woman and they, they defined that by if she was inside the house talking and the neighbor could hear her, then she was a scolding woman. And if she was a scolding woman, you could divorce her. You, you get the point. They could divorce for just about anything. 
divorce court judge had looked at the case and decided to come back to the husband and wife and he said, Mr. Smith, I've reviewed the case carefully and I've decided to give your wife $800 a week. He said, that's very fair, Your Honor. Every now and then I'll send her a few bucks myself. <laughs> that's not how it works. Woman said, we had a difficult divorce because there was a child involved. My husband and I didn't want custody. The first century viewed divorce the same way that we view it today as a contract and not a covenant. Now, there's a difference between a contract and a covenant. And they viewed it as a contract, and that's the way many people view it today. Did you know that back in 2010, I forget the name of the insurance company. I saw it today, but, but you can actually purchase divorce insurance now. Did you know that? Now, it's fairly expensive. It's like, uh, it's like 16 bucks a thousand for a, per month. All right, But what it does, I looked up the definition, here's what it said. Divorce insurance is a form of contractual liability insurance that pays the insured a cash benefit if their marriage ends in divorce. It was designed to cover the cost of the divorce proceedings. Now, friend, if you purchase that, you have entered your marriage with a foot in the grave. I mean, you've already planned your way of escape. When I talk to couples in premarital counseling, I'm going to tell them, you know, what happens if, I ask them, I say, what happens if life gets really hard and y'all are struggling to figure out how to make it work? I've actually had a few couples tell me, well, yeah, we'll just get a divorce. And, and I tell them, now, now stop, think about what you just said. You have already planned your way of escape. You've already said, if this doesn't work out, this is what I'm going to do. And I said, that is no way to begin a marriage. The Pharisees had forgotten that God gave a definitive statement in the Old Testament about divorce. It was in Malachi chapter 2, verse 6. He said, I hate divorce. Now, important. You need, to, you need to differentiate, okay? God loves divorcees, all right? But he hates divorce. And so today at my desk, I asked the question, why would God hate divorce so much you know why i mean there's not a whole lot that god says in his word that he hates but he's very clear here that this is something that he hates and why would he why would he feel that way and i think i came up with some reasons because marriage is designed to be an irrevocable covenant of unconditional love and when you divorce you break that covenant because I think God knows the damage that it does psychologically to a person, that it can do spiritually to a person, that it can do emotionally to a person. He knows the financial chaos that often follows divorce. He knows what it does to the hearts and minds of any children that are caught in the middle of it. And so because of all of those things, I think that's why he hates it. I read today about a couple that was 92 and 94, and they were getting a divorce after 73 years of marriage. And the judge asked the woman, he said, how, how come y'all are, wait, you know, how, how at seven, after 73 years of marriage can you now get a divorce? And, and she said, well, she said, we waited until the children died before we got a divorce. Marriage has been on the rocks for a while, but we waited for them to die. How does divorce affect children? I, again, I'm not a sociologist, and so I had to do a little research today to find out how it affects children. Children from divorced families, if you're a school teacher, you probably know this, uh, they have more emotional and behavioral problems than those who are not from a divorced family. 
These children experience sadness, anger, loneliness, low self-esteem. Not all of them. These are general statements. Understand it doesn't apply to every single child. Okay, so if, you've, if you happen to be divorced and you have a child, it doesn't necessarily apply to your child. I'm just telling you generally speaking. Uh, divorce couples have children that have earlier sexual activity, more prone to substance abuse and depression. Uh, adult children of divorced homes, I, this staggered me, are four times more likely to get a divorce. That was staggering to me when I read that today. Studies, another staggering statistic, studies have shown that children that come from broken homes live on average four and a half years less than those who don't. I don't know why that is, but that was in the American Journal of Public Health in 1995. That was their study. It was published in, in their book, all right? Maybe God hates divorce because of the physical problems it produces. Did you know there are physical problems that result from divorce? Divorced men are more than two times likely to die of heart disease, stroke, hypertension, or cancer, four times more likely to die in an auto accident, and seven times have a higher incidence of pneumonia and cirrhosis of the liver. Again, I don't know why that's true, but it is, all right? Divorced women lose 50% more time to illness and injury at work than married women, and they're two to three more times likely to die from all forms of cancer. Both divorced men and women are five times more likely to succumb to substance abuse. Divorced people are three times more likely to commit suicide, and they have a 40% greater risk of premature death. Any of these reasons could be why God hates divorce, right? Or all of the reasons, all of the above. Um, Jesus had the courage to confront the problem of divorce, and I think the church today has to do the same. Got to have the courage to confront the problem. And secondly, I think we have to confirm the permanence of marriage. Look at verse 32. Jesus says, But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. So Jesus offers one exception, one allowance, sexual immorality. The Greek word is the word pornea, from which we get our word pornography, and it literally means any illicit sexual interaction. Adultery, homosexuality, incest. Um, you get the sense that Jesus would not support no-fault divorces because he just gives one, just one allowance. He wouldn't buy irreconcilable differences. He wouldn't buy incompatibility. He wouldn't buy money problems. He wouldn't buy personality issues. The problem with the Pharisees and with people today, now, now catch this because this is pretty significant. I, I've, I've read this passage lots of times and never really thought about this until today. The problem with them and the problem with us is our focus is on divorce. Our focus is on divorce, whereas Jesus is focused on marriage. Do you get the difference? The Pharisees emphasized the, 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 the question of divorce, and Jesus emphasized the priority of marriage, not the grounds for divorce. That was his focus. You know, we ask, how do we get out of it? When we should be asking, what do we need to do to stay in it? If we have Jesus' perspective. Jesus quotes um, from Genesis 2, the very first couple. This was God's view from the beginning. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's God, I mean, that's God's plan from the very beginning. Adam and Eve, 
Man leaves. He, Adam didn't have a mother and father to leave, but everybody since then has. Man leaves his mother and father, cleaves to his wife, and the two become one flesh. And the word, the word cleave is like con glue. You ever seen them con glue commercials? You know, they glue a hard hat to a beam, and the guy's, the guy's hanging from the, from the beam holding on to the hard hat. Because, you know, it's inseparable, supposedly. Well, that's the word cleave. The Hebrew word cleave means that we should be bound together inseparably. That was God's intention. Have you ever heard anybody say, you know, I don't need to get married. It's just, I don't need a marriage license. It's just a piece of paper. You ever heard that? I've heard it. You know, couples living together say, we don't need to get married. It's just a piece of paper. Let's think for just a moment about how how, uh, how illogically or how logically unsound that statement is. On the way home tonight, you get pulled over by a police officer. He says, let me see your driver's license and registration. And you look at him and say, oh, I don't need one. I don't need those things. Those are just pieces of paper. I don't think it's going to go well for you. Is it, Brother Hare? Not going to go well, no. Or... Um, Another example that I came up with, potential employer, you want to get a job at a place, and they say, well, give us your resume. I don't need a resume. Resume is just a piece of paper. <laughs> you got two chances of getting that job, slim and none, and none's way out front. All right? Or, or somebody says, uh, you're, you're out hunting or you're fishing, and the game warden pulls up and says, let me see your license. Let me see your tags. I don't need those things. Those are just pieces of paper. Friend, a marriage license is more than a piece of paper. It represents a sacred covenant between you, your spouse, and the Lord God. It's not just a piece of paper. Jesus emphasized the priority of marriage, not the grounds for divorce. The Pharisees come wanting to know what the grounds for divorce are. Jesus emphasizes the priority of marriage. In Matthew 19, 5 and 6, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, the two shall become one flesh, so he's quoted Genesis 2.24, and then he goes on and he says, So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus is telling them, and I think he's telling us, that we tend to focus on the wrong thing when we uh, sing if there are grounds for divorce. You know, if, I, I tried to come up with an analogy, and I don't know if it's a very good one or not, but it's what I came up with. Let's say you're going to buy a used car. And you go to the car lot, and you just look at the, the, the stickers on the window. And you find a car that's, caught, that's advertised to cost what you want to pay. You don't look at the engine. You don't look at the mileage. You don't look at the exterior or interior of the car. You turn to the salesman after looking at the sticker, and you say, I'll buy it. Friend, if you do that, you are focused on all of the wrong things. And not focused on the right things. If you go to buy a used car, you better look at the interior, the exterior, the motor, how many miles it has on it, if the title's clear or not. I mean, there's all kinds of things you should focus on. And Jesus says when we just focus on the grounds for divorce, we're focused completely on the wrong thing. Sunday we talked about no matter who officiates the wedding, God performs every wedding. You understand that, don't you? I've, I've, uh, I've officiated 150, 200 weddings. But God performed them all. I didn't. I didn't perform them. I can't, I can't tie them together. Did you see what Jesus said? What the preacher has joined together? No, what God has joined together. Let no man separate. All right? 
God was the one joining them together. So Jesus corrected their wrong teachings about divorce. We keep going in Matthew 19, verses 7 and 8. Then he said to him, they said to him, why did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? So the Pharisees say, look, it's in the Old Testament. Moses said we could do this. Why did, my, why did Moses say we had the ability to do this? And Jesus is real clear. He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. What does he mean from the beginning it was not so? Genesis 2.24, a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They're, they're one. You know, you're not going to cut yourself in half because when you cut yourself in half, you die. And, and so when you become bound to your spouse, you are one. Jesus emphasized the, um, the seriousness of the marriage commitment. Matthew 19, the next verse, verse 9. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. These are almost the exact same words of Matthew 5, 32. Now, let's just stop for a second. Some of you might say, well, pastor, it's too late for me. I'm already divorced. Is it possible to recover from divorce? absolutely it is all right three things to build to rebuild your life if you've experienced divorce one rebuild it on forgiveness rebuild your life on forgiveness i know people that have carried around guilt over divorce and it wasn't even necessarily their fault but they still carry the guilt of that you need to hear what romans five twenty says but where sin abounded grace abounded much more and so if you want to rebuild your life, begin with forgiveness. Forgive yourself, friend. You know, sometimes the, 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 we blame ourselves. And maybe it was our fault. Maybe it wasn't. But, but when we refuse to give ourselves, this is what we're telling God. God, since you won't punish me, I'm going to punish myself. Now, how much sense does that make? But that's what we do when we refuse to forgive ourselves. So rebuild your life on forgiveness. Rebuild it on faith. Faith is simply taking God at his word and doing it. The gap between what we know that God says and what we do. That's why James says to be doers of the word and not hearers only. So rebuild your life on forgiveness. God forgives. It's not the unforgivable, unpardonable sin. Rebuild your life on faith. Take God at his word and try to do it. And then third, rebuild your life on fellowship. You know, don't... Don't walk away from the church. And sometimes, I'll just admit, the church is guilty of pushing people away. I've seen it. But uh, if that's not the case, listen, don't, don't turn your... When you need the, the fellowship of Christian believers more than ever is when you're experiencing great pain. And so rebuild your life on the fellowship of godly Christian friends, people of faith. Maybe tonight you're sitting here married and you say, Pastor, you don't understand. I just don't love them anymore. No, you don't understand. Love is a choice. It's an act of the will. Love is not an emotion. Now, there are emotions attached to it, certainly, but love is a choice. I choose every day when I get up to love Jan. Thankfully, she chooses every day when she gets up to love Tom. It's an act of the will. We're not always lovely towards one another. But we love one another. Why? Because we choose to through good times and bad. So let me give you some life application. We'll go home. Life application number one, Christian marriages do have problems. 
Hate to break it to you, especially if you're a newlywed, but Christian marriages go through tough times, just like non-Christian marriages, all right? The Food Network has a show, Chopped. I don't know how I know that, other than the fact my wife has gotten me watching the Food Network. You know, I come in, and I've got to watch whatever she's got on. And Anybody see last night's episode of Chopped? Huh? Come on, somebody had to have seen it. In, in, in Chopped, what happens is they got these chefs together, and they give them a mystery basket filled with, filled with different ingredients that don't seemingly go together and they have to create something be it an appetizer be it a main course be it a dessert and they eliminate a chef each time to where they get down to the champion well last night's new episode the the entree here was what was in the uh, the mystery basket stuffed lamb intestines now i'm done right there stick a fork in me i'm done but it gets worse cured tuna heart I'm not real sure what that means, cured, but garlic ice cream and red, and red runner bean blooms. Now, they could add stuff to that, but every one of those four ingredients had to be included in the entree. And so that was the mystery basket, and that's what they had to work with. When they open the baskets, they see what they get, and it gets pretty interesting. Now, why do I tell you that story? Because when we get married, we get to open the mystery basket and see what we get to work with. I mean, let's be honest. None of us are completely honest when we're dating. It's just the way that it is. We put our best foot forward. And, and, and based on what the ingredients are, what we came to think to be so may or may not work. It may be true in theory, but it may not work in real life based on the ingredients. Anyone who's been married very long will tell you it's a surprise what's in the basket. Continues to be surprises, like new episodes of Chopped. Um, it could be an unexpected illness. That's an ingredient you didn't plan for. A, uh, an unknown wound or insecurity that happened in the person's life that you didn't know about. An emotional pain from a traumatic event earlier in life. An in-law who was only supposed to stay two weeks. Yeah. Those are all surprises. They're things that come out of the basket that you say, man, I didn't plan for this. No matter what you find in your basket, as Christians, we have the task of creating something that will produce a good marriage. Christian marriages have problems. That leads to life application number two. Walking out is easier than working through. It doesn't matter what the problem is, not just divorce. Maybe you've got a bad job. You know, sometimes walking out is easier than working through it. Um, I read this story today, Rick Warren. How many of you read one of Rick Warren's books? Fairly, he and Kay, his wife, are probably one of the most well-known Christian couples in ministry in America today. They seemed to have the perfect marriage but in the article i was reading Kay, his wife admits that what they really experienced was her words not mine marriage hell they went through that what seemed to be like a perfect marriage she said they were married at 21 and their marriage took an immediate nosedive hear what she said this is a quote we didn't even make it to the end of our two-week honeymoon in the british columbia before we knew our relationship was in serious trouble 
We had been warned about five potential areas of conflict all couples have to deal with, and we immediately jumped into all five of them. Sex, communication, money, children, and in-laws. She said within the first two weeks, we were fighting over all five topics. She said it took a lot of work. It took a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. It took a lot of counseling appointments. It took the, the, them being open and honest with their families and with their small group to let them know what was going on in their life, to be transparent to some people who mattered in their life. Um, she said it took us to determine to say one more time, let's start over. One more time, please forgive me. One more time, I forgive you. One more time, I was wrong. Now listen to this last quote I'll give you from Kay. Each of us is not who the other was looking for, but each of us is who the other desperately needed to become the person that we are today. Yet it's also been the very best thing that has ever happened to either of us. We wouldn't be who we are today without each other. The shrieks of iron sharpening iron have often sounded like gears grinding on bare metal, but the result has been profound personal growth in both of us. What's, what's Kay Warren saying? It's easier to walk out. It's hard to work through. But she says that they're better for it. Life application number three, don't forget the three A's. Attention, affirmation, and affection. If you give your spouse attention, you affirm them, and you show them affection. Now, guys, affection is not spelled S-E-X, okay? Affection is Gary's got his arm around his wife. That's, that's affection. You know, holding her hand or whatever, that's affection, Okay? Um, we're gonna, you may have heard this story, I don't know I, I, I read it again today, I've heard it before And I read it again today This woman goes to her counselor and she says I can't stand my husband I hate him And I want to be the absolute meanest I can to him Can you help me? Wanted advice from the counselor on how she could be the absolute meanest wife there was Counselor smiled, thought about it for a moment, said, tell you what, go home and tell him that you love him. She says, but I don't. Counselor said, but he doesn't necessarily know that. That's what makes it good. Do everything possible to prove that you love him. Do things that you've never done before, and then when he's convinced that you absolutely idolize him, tell him, say, I don't really love you, and I want a divorce. And the wife said, wow, that's good. That's really mean. I, I, I think that'll work. And so she went home. Her husband came home from work, and she greeted him with a kiss, said, honey, I love you. He kind of looked at her strange and said, well, great. Went on about his things that he'd normally do. And day after day, she began to do things that she had never done before him, to show in a way that she loved him. A few weeks later, she went back to the counselor and counselor said well how'd it go she said it worked like a charm i did all of these things for him i proved to him that i loved him and he bought it hook line and sinker the counselor said well great now you can sue him for divorce the woman said are you crazy the counselor said what do you mean am i crazy and she said i've fallen in love with him our marriage is happier than it's ever been before you say well preacher that's just a story and that's crazy 
if God has the power to raise his son from the dead, then surely he has the power to raise your love from the dead. Father, thank you for the teaching of your word, and I pray that tonight has been balanced with grace and yet with truth, trying to be honest to your word. Now, this is not a passage that I necessarily have looked forward to preaching, but I made a commitment to you that I would preach the entire counsel of your word, and so in order to be faithful to the commitment I made to you years ago, I can't avoid the passages that I may not like. God, I pray tonight for healing in the hearts of those who are heavy. Some maybe have been experiencing guilt or frustration or whatever over things that have happened in their past. God, help them to understand that your grace is greater than anything that we bring to the foot of the cross. Your forgiveness is real. God, help some folks to forgive themselves. For, for those who may be contemplating divorce, God, I pray that the, tonight that the Holy Spirit's conviction would be real in their life. Father, I pray like this woman in this story, may they resolve to go home and to do everything they can to prove that they love their husband or their wife. And God, I pray that the end result would be the same, that they would fall in love again. Lord, raise some marriages tonight. Do what only you can. Now, Lord, have your will in our heart and life, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.